The Interchange is brought to you by Hitachi ABB Power Grids. Are you building a renewable power plant? Looking for a battery storage system? Thinking about how to integrate renewables onto your grid? Hitachi ABB Power Grids is your choice. Meet your goals, unlock new revenue streams, maximize renewable integration, lower carbon emissions. All with Power Grids innovative control and automation technology. For more, visit the link right there in the show notes. The Interchange is also brought to you by Long Yi Solar, the world's leading solar technology company. Long Yi supplies high-efficiency monocrystalline solar modules to all market segments and project types in the U.S. A global market leader, Long Yi has unmatched bankability, quality, and performance validated by third-party laboratories and has a breakthrough innovation at both the wafer and module level. With Long Yi products, customers can be sure they're getting technologically advanced, best-in-class solar technology. What we want to try to do in this context is sort of recreate the same outcome as a traditional CES, but by providing financial incentives for utilities to go out and procure additional clean electricity. Um, and the interesting, you know, uh, an important uh, distinction there is that that means that the cost of the clean energy transition shifts from electric utility bills to the federal tax base. And I think that's a really important point to stress because the federal tax code is progressive to some degree, right? Progressive and not in the liberal versus uh, you know conservative sense, but progressive in the sense that it uh, wealthier people pay more um, of the federal tax code. You know, we're basically going to tax the corporations and wealthier people to raise the funding to cover this once in a generation transition to a cleaner electricity system. This week, we take a rare peek into the news. A clean electricity standard is making its winding way through the reconciliation process in United States Congress. What is it exactly? This is The Interchange. I'm Shale Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. So we're recording this episode on the morning of Wednesday, July 21st, which is not normally something that I have to say on this podcast because we're normally talking about long-term issues in this market. But this week, it's more immediate. Last week, President Biden unveiled his administration's plan for a $3.5 trillion infrastructure plan, which the Democrats hope to pass through reconciliation. More on that soon. While the details are still relatively sparse, we, we do know that one of the linchpins of the Biden administration's climate strategy, which is a national clean electricity standard, is going to be included in this plan in some form or another. It's a big deal. If you care about the power sector, a national clean electricity standard might be the most impactful piece of legislation affecting that sector in decades. If you care about decarbonization writ large, as we've talked about ad nauseum on this show, almost every pathway to deep decarbonization drives directly through a decarbonized power sector combined with large-scale electrification of other sectors, such as transportation, industry, and heating. But there's probably more we don't know than what we do at this point. The details of the plan still need to be determined, and there will inevitably be plenty of horse trading before the bill itself passes, if indeed it does in the first place. But given its importance, we wanted to dig through what we do note, and particularly offer as much detail as possible on how this version of a clean electricity standard, namely the kind that can be passed through a reconciliation process, might function. So we brought back on the show Jesse Jenkins, 
Jesse's been on the show a couple times before. Uh, he's a professor at Princeton with dual appointments in the School of Engineering and Applied Science and in the Andlinger Center for Energy and the Environment. As you'll hear, uh, in addition to being one of the foremost energy modeling wonks in the country, he's also deep in the federal policy world at the moment and has a role in helping to design what this clean electricity standard might look like. So with no further ado, my conversation with Jesse. Jesse, welcome. Good to be back on the interchange. Thanks, Jill. Nice to have you back for your, I think, third or fourth time, something like that. I, I can't remember. But uh, this is the first time that we've done it to specific. Last time we were talking about pathways to 2050. This time we're talking about things that are happening this week. So it's a nice, uh, it's a nice coda to that one. Yeah, it's exciting times. It is indeed. Uh, okay, so we want to talk about this. Uh, budget reconciliation bill that is working its way through the process in Washington right now, and specifically the the possibility of a clean electricity standard within it. Let's start with the bill itself. Um, so we're recording this on Wednesday morning on July 21st. What is the current state of affairs uh, of where this bill is in the process? Yeah, so there really isn't a bill yet. There is a, what essentially is an agreement amongst leadership in the Democratic Party um, as to the overall size of a reconciliation package, an agreement for a $3.5 trillion um, budget bill. Uh, and the next step is for a budget resolution to pass uh, on the floor of the Senate, which effectively gives marching orders essentially to each of the committees of jurisdiction over different topics uh, and gives them a top line spending or revenue number. Um, which is the total amount in net that they can, you know, spend or or have impact on the federal budget um, as part of this package. And then each of those committees goes and does its work and puts together um, the actual legislation, the detailed provisions uh, um, related to spending and revenue that make up that overall budget reconciliation bill, which will then come back uh, to the floor for a vote uh, in the Senate. And the important part about budget reconciliation, the reason that this is the avenue for pursuing um, so many of the priority policies for the Democratic Party right now is that you can pass budget reconciliation bills with uh, 50 votes plus the vice president. So a simple majority in the Senate, as opposed to uh, what's known as regular order bills, you know, other legislation that's non-budgetary, uh, which has to pass the Senate filibuster requiring uh, 60 votes. And in this case, that means uh, securing 10 Republican votes um, if all of the Democrats vote for that legislation. So what we're seeing is sort of a two-track process right now to moving economic policy. One is this bipartisan infrastructure framework that has been negotiated with a group of uh, Republican senators uh, focused on kind of more traditional infrastructure, roads and bridges and clean water, and actually uh, quite a few important energy provisions. We can talk a little bit about that later if you want to. Um, but the big priority issues, the things that will make the biggest dent in climate uh, and climate change and in emissions over the next decade are going to have to move through the reconciliation process um, with a Democrats only uh, kind of vote. And so you alluded to, I guess, one important caveat that we should give up at the front here, which is at this point, there's no bill yet exactly. And what we know is uh, the highline target spending number, 3.5 trillion, as you said. And then we've sort of heard things that are supposedly included within that 3.5 trillion, which includes the clean electricity standard. So how do we know any of that? Where's that coming from? Is it is it rumor? Is it official? 
Like, what does that actually mean? So it's um, it's a little bit of both. So what we've seen is uh, there was a PowerPoint presentation that the White House um, uh, used to brief um, Senate Budget Committee staff or Budget Committee members and uh, and House and Senate leadership uh, on what they wanted to see in this framework and what they had reached agreement on. Uh, and so that was you know had a, a list of items and you know high level things that they wanted to include, such as you know extensions of the child tax credit. Um, expansions of Medicare, uh, and on the climate front, um, clean energy tax policy. Uh, so a lot of a big package of tax credits for wind, solar, clean electricity, clean vehicles, et cetera. Um, and this clean electricity standard um, was on the list. And so when that happened, um, and as those sort of meetings wrapped up, um, Senator Smith, uh, Tina Smith from uh, Minnesota was sort of the first to kind of publicly confirm this uh, on Twitter that uh, a CES or clean electricity standard or an equivalent policy, we'll talk about you know, how, it, how that'll differ, um, is, is, a, is a part of the package as it was part of the um, American Jobs Plan um, you know, policy framework that the Biden administration released earlier this year. So I think we'll talk mostly about this clean electricity standard because it's a big deal and it's a new thing. But you mentioned the tax policy. I mean, you know, tax credits have obviously been foundational to the growth of wind and solar in the U.S. to date. And there's been a regular process of debate over extension or non-extension. There's been lots of, um, you know, new ideas introduced about new tax credits for EVs or for energy storage or whatever. Do we have any detail on what that component might look like at this point, or is it just blanket, you know, clean energy tax policy? So we don't know exactly what the details will be for what will end up in the reconciliation bill, but we have a little bit of an idea um, of kind of where the contours lie from uh, two different uh, kind of draft legislation that have been uh, introduced and in some cases debated uh, in the House and the Senate. And so there, there's what's called the Green Act that has been introduced by um, by the House uh, and and considered in the House Ways and Means Committee, which covers tax policy in the House. Um, and that involves effectively extending the production tax credit and investment tax credits for wind and solar uh, at basically today's level. So the kind of partially step down levels that they're at now um, for another five or six years. Um, so not the full kind of 10 year window that we're looking at in the budget. Um, and then, uh, so it's a little bit more modest approach um, of kind of continuing with the policy package that we have right now. Uh, there's some other things in the Green Act around, um, you know, carbon capture and storage and hydrogen and uh, electric vehicles and things as well. Uh, and then there's the Senate Finance Committee chaired by Ron Wyden of Oregon, um, who has introduced the Clean Energy for America Act and actually marked it up in committee recently. Uh, and that is a more, um, uh, you know, more robust and, and more novel approach to tax credits where the current PTC and ITC for specific technologies would actually be replaced by a kind of technology neutral uh, tax credit available either as a PTC or an ITC, you can elect uh, which one, uh, for any low carbon electricity resource. And there would be no fixed date on the timeline for that policy. It would actually start to phase down when um, emissions in the electricity sector had fa have fallen to 25% of, I think, 2020 levels. So there's an actual kind of emissions outcome tied to the phase down of that policy. And so after that level is hit, then over the next three years or so, uh, the tax credits would phase out. There's a similar uh, revision in there of the electric vehicle uh, credits, where instead of these sort of manufacturer specific phase outs, where you kind of get penalized for being a successful EV sales company, right, because you you're hit your manufacturer cap and the tax credit phases out as it has for Tesla, for example, um, it would be a kind of a... a, a 
a metric for sales across the whole fleet. So once I think sales for the whole fleet reach a uh, 50%, I believe was the threshold, or, um, then the uh, tax credit there starts to phase down. So it's a very different approach. Um, and, you know, and so those two bills are very far apart. And obviously the House and the Senate both get a say on this thing. And so, you know, where we end up in terms of the tax package, what exactly is in it, um, and does it look more like the Wyden bill or more like the, the Green Act is, I think, still uncertain. But you can at least get a contour of what's in play from looking at those two pieces of legislation. Got it. Okay. So some some form of tax credits likely included here, whether it be either of those two that you described or some third version. Some, is- yeah, combination or compromise. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, some big robust tax package, you know, probably order on the order of a couple hundred billion dollars or, you know, worth of spending uh, is going to be part of whatever final bill we see here. So there will be some big tax credit policy. And, you know, tax policy is always, you know, right in the bullseye for what's germane to budget reconciliation. Um, we'll talk, we should talk about some of the kind of limitations on reconciliation, what can be included, what can't. But tax policy is always part of it. And so it's kind of the most straightforward thing to do. Uh, trying to get a clean electricity standard, which is traditionally a regulatory policy through a budgetary bill like this is a bit more of a, uh, you know, creative balancing act. Right. Okay. So that's a perfect segue then. So, yeah, as you as you just said, you know, tax credit, tax credit ex- extension or introduction of new tax credits, like squarely within the realm of this type of bill, generally speaking. So we can expect some of that in there. Um, but let's shift over to the clean electricity standard. So what what we're, most of us who pay attention to this market generally are familiar with are renewable portfolio standards, which we've, we've got in 30 some states now. And they've been, a lot, you know, I think this sort of Two foundational policy elements to the growth of wind and solar have been the tax credits that we talked about before and the renewable portfolio standards at the state level. Now, those uh, basically, you know, they, they vary somewhat from state to state, but high level, they set a percentage target, generally speaking, of renewables or specific technologies in some cases within renewables that the state needs to hit and that individual utilities within the state need to hit uh, by certain dates. And then there's varying levels of teeth to that. But they're they're set as percentage targets and their their regulatory mandates. Talk a little bit about how this clean electricity standard might have to be structured because it is coming through a reconciliation bill and not a normal regulatory bill. So there are some rules to budget reconciliation that are outlined in the Congressional Budget Act of 1990 something, um, I believe. Uh, and what it you know what that basically says is. Uh, if you want to include something in a budget resolution, it has to be budgetary. It has to be about spending money or federal outlays, and it has to be about raising money or taxation, you know, fees, um, other revenue sources. Uh, and more importantly uh, for, for this, it's not just that it has to have a budgetary component to it. It's that that has to be the principal component, that the, the budgetary impact can't be sort of ancillary to some other policy. Um, so you can't just sort of tack on some little nominal fee uh, to what is otherwise a you know some other policy that's intended to do something else, or have it be an incidental impact of a policy. And this is where the effort to increase the minimum wage in the um, in the um, American Rescue Plan um, kind of fell uh, fell to this rule, this restriction, because the argument was if we increase the minimum wage, that's going to change taxation, right? People are going to make more money in their income checks. Um, that's going to raise payroll taxes. That's going to raise um, income taxes, uh, and that's going to have an effect on the budget. And the parliamentarian uh, who's in charge of the Senate rules and interpreting those rules 
um, basically looked at that and said, well, that's an incidental effect. It's a sort of secondary effect of raising the minimum wage. The goal of raising the minimum wage is to raise the minimum wage. And it has some other secondary effects on the budget, but that's not the main point. So we have to kind of um, adhere to this, you know, kind of core budgetary function, uh, which means that the policy has to be about taxing and spending or, you know, fees and incentives, um, not about regulatory requirements or um, or other uh, sort of changes like that. So just to interrupt you for one second, maybe this is exactly what you were going to say, but that let's contrast that to an RPS for a second, right? Because an RPS does... There's some component of like money, you know, passes hand to hand, but clearly the way that they are structured, generally speaking, the primary objective is to set this percentage of renewable energy. Yeah, it's to require utilities, basically retail electric suppliers, right? Those who supply end use customers to go out and buy more clean energy to supply their customers. That's the basic function of a renewable portfolio standard or or a clean electricity standard. The difference there being that a clean electricity standard has a more expansive definition of qualifying resources that's focused on the kind of ends rather than the means, right? So a clean electricity standard is technology neutral and includes any uh, qualifying technology that achieves a low enough emissions rate, right? The goal is to you know reduce emissions. Whereas a renewable portfolio standard tends to have a list of like, you know, technology A, B, C, and D are part of tier one. And then these technologies are part of tier two. And it's focused on means that work rather than the ends. And so it's a little bit more restrictive. So back to this uh, reconciliation bill. So it's a clean electricity standard, we believe, not a renewable portfolio standard, um, according to that distinction. Uh, but as you have described, the you know, necessity to make it fundamentally about the budget, about spending and taxation, uh, makes the traditional form of a an RPS or a CES not quite fit. So w- what do we know about how you might actually structure a clean electricity standard so that it would comport with the rules for what this bill can Accomplish. Yeah. So if you think about a traditional RPS or CES, these are regulatory mechanisms. They put a regulatory requirement on electric uh, retailers, retail electric suppliers, to buy more and more clean electricity or renewable electricity. And there's a penalty usually if you don't do that, right? You have to pay some kind of fee. Uh, but the the plan is for utilities never to play that fee, right? Because it's just there, you know, to ensure compliance. Um, you know, sort of like uh, a traffic ticket, right? Um, the and so the idea is that you know the regulatory requirement will then be passed on to utilities. Utilities go out and buy clean energy, and then the budgetary impact on that is felt in rates, right? In electricity customers' bills, um, who see you know either a line item or their their energy portion of their cost goes up a little bit to cover the increased cost of cleaner electricity sources. That is not a viable approach in budget reconciliation because it is not about the federal budget. It's about what utilities do or don't do. Um, and so the, the shift has to be from a regulatory mechanism to a budgetary mechanism or investment-based mechanism, an incentive-based program that effectively doesn't, it's really not a CES anymore in a traditional sense, right? By a definitional sense. So we're kind of using that term because we want, well, you know, when we say there's a CES in here, what we mean is there's a policy in here that is intended to drive retail electric suppliers to buy more clean electricity and to get us to 80% clean electricity by 2030. That's sort of the shorthand. Now, the policy itself is actually not a traditional CES at all. It's going to have to be something that is based on federal incentives or investments. And so what we, what we want to try to do in this context is sort of recreate the same outcome as a traditional CES, but by providing financial incentives for utilities to go out and procure additional clean electricity. Um, and the interesting you know, uh, and important 
uh, distinction there is that that means that the cost of the clean energy transition shifts from electric utility bills to the federal tax base. And I think that's a really important point to stress because the federal tax code is progressive to some degree, right? Progressive and not in the liberal versus uh, you know conservative sense, but progressive in the sense that it uh, wealthier people pay more um, of the federal tax code. Um, whereas electric utility bills are often regressive, right? As a share of your income, utility bills are larger for lower income people. And so just passing the, the cost of the clean energy on to uh, utility rates can raise legitimate concerns about, you know, equity impacts and impacts on lower fixed income customers, impacts on the cost of electricity and how that might affect electrification incentives. All of that is um, is addressed by shifting the cost uh, to the federal tax code. You know, we're basically going to tax the corporations and wealthier people to raise the funding to cover this once in a generation transition to a cleaner electricity system. The Interchange is brought to you by Hitachi ABB Power Grids. Energy resilience is important everywhere. Yet imagine living near the Arctic Circle. Reliable power makes daily life possible, and Hitachi ABB Power Grid's battery energy storage system prevents power outages for communities outside Fairbanks. In fact, the innovative system holds the Guinness record for the world's most powerful battery. No matter where you are, energy storage can improve resilience and efficiency, offer greater user availability with smart grid technology, integrate solar or wind to reach your sustainability goals, lower electricity bills by reducing load and peak shaving. It's all achievable with energy storage solutions. Learn more about stacking value with energy storage solutions through ABB Power Grids. Follow the link right there in the show notes. We are also brought to you by Longy. Longy is the world's most valuable solar company with a market capitalization of $8.4 billion. It supplies more than 80 gigawatts of solar wafers and modules worldwide each year, about a quarter of global market demand. Longy's modules lead in efficiency and are validated through rigorous testing at leading independent labs and has multiple top awards from testing agencies. With sustainability front and center, Longy partners with the Climate Group and other sustainability leaders pledging to be 100% powered by renewables by 2028. With Longy products, customers can be sure they're getting technologically advanced, best-in-class solar technology. So let's talk about how this might actually work in practice then. So uh, it, it, it sounds like what you're saying is there will be a pot of money, maybe not a specifically defined pot of money, but some pot of money in the U.S. Treasury or something that will outlay cash to utilities who put additional clean generation resources on their system. Is that right? And do we have any idea how that's going to, first of all, how you define you know how much they get paid versus what they put on the system and you know is it like a essentially a subsidy in cents per kilowatt hour like how, how does this work yeah so i'll give you a sense of the kind of current policy that's that's been championed by uh senator smith um and you know that i've had some input on and others um you know have been helping uh, work through, you know, the design of to work through this reconciliation context. Uh, now, you know, the high level contours of that policy are starting to, you know, be clear, you know, become public. And, and so we can talk about that. But I think it's important to note that this is sort of the current state of play. And at the end of the day, this is going to have to move through the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. It's going to have to move through the House Energy and Commerce Committee. And a lot of people, including basically every single member of the Democratic caucus in both the House and the Senate, get to have their say on what this bill looks like. And so, you know, the, the final product may differ from um, what we're talking about now. 
Um, and so just to, you know, make that that clear, this is, you know, this is a, a framework policy that is not a legislative text. You know, it is still has a long way to go to uh, make its way into um, the, the congressional or into the federal statute. Um, but what we're thinking about basically is uh, a requirement for electric uh, retail electric suppliers uh, to increase the total amount of clean electricity uh, in their portfolio uh, year on year. So every year there's a target for how much that uh, clean electricity share should increase by say three percentage points or four percentage points or five percentage points per year. And a financial reward or um, uh, and federal investments that would flow to utilities that achieve at least a threshold um, portion of that target or that goal. So it may not be that you have to get all the way to the full three or 4% per year to qualify for, um, for federal um, rebates or payments. Uh, but you may need to you know, achieve a substantial fraction of that, maybe two thirds or three quarters of the target for the year. Once a retailer gets over that threshold, then they're going to start to qualify for a single year uh, payment um, in you know, dollars per megawatt hour that is intended to do two things. One, that incentive should be higher than the marginal cost of meeting the clean energy goals for the utility, right? So that they're better off adding clean electricity and getting a larger payment from the government to do so. And this right, but just to pause in there for one second, because if that wasn't true, then you'd end up with a situation where the utility says, "Well, yeah, I could add a bunch more clean resources at a cost of, I don't know, ten dollars per megawatt hour beyond what I would be paying otherwise." The government's going to give me eight dollars per megawatt hour to do that, and I don't get to like. There, there's no carrot in that for me, so it ha- it has to be higher than the incremental cost of that new clean generation, which is a price that's going to have to get set by the government, presumably. So that seems like a pretty tricky, because it's all very situational and it's like predicting forward looking clean generation costs in a specific utilities portfolio. Like that's no small task. No, it's no small task. And it's important to note, this is not a regulatory requirement. It is not a mandate. It's a financial incentive. And if those financial incentives are too low, then utilities won't achieve the final goal. Um, And if it's too high, then they'll get more than they need to achieve that goal. And, you know, that's one of the um, you know, that's one of the distinguishing features of an incentive-based approach rather than a quantity-based, you know, requirement or mechanism. In that sense, it's really no different than the production tax credit or the investment tax credit, right? We're providing financial incentives to make clean electricity more attractive in the marketplace. And then the marketplace responds to those financial incentives. Now, there, you know, in, in policy design, there are always sort of two approaches, right? There's, there's quantity-based instruments like a renewable portfolio standard that, or a cap and trade program that says, you know, we need you to hit this target of quantity or reduce emissions to this level. And then the market responds by finding the prices needed to do that. Or you can have a price-based or financial, you know, incentive-based mechanism. And that's where a production tax credit or a carbon tax or, or this, uh, clean, this um, budget-based uh, clean electricity standard alternative, um, you know, fits in where we're providing financial incentives and then the market responds by finding the quantities that make sense. So it's a, it is a distinct policy. And, you know, we're not saying we can guarantee that every utility will um, will achieve the, you know, the, the annual targets, but there will be a strong financial incentive to do that. And if that financial incentive is designed uh, adequately, then utilities are going to be better off adding clean electricity year on year toward, as we march towards that nationwide goal of 80% clean electricity. That, there's a second piece, though, that I want to say that is important. So the financial incentives do two things. One, it, it's an, uh, it addresses the marginal incentive to add more clean up to the point of the annual target. And the total payment from the government helps address the incremental costs to um, this transition. 
So there's a lump sum kind of transfer component to this, right? A, a large check will be, you know, transferred to utilities and there are terms and conditions on what that check can be used for. It can't just be used for, um, you know, for, for dividends to shareholders. Um, it has to be used to lower rates for customers, to invest in new clean energy, to um, help repower, retire fossil assets, you know, things like that that benefit the, um, the, the public and the ratepayers. Uh, but that cost, that transfer is going to help offset the cost and shift effectively the cost of the clean energy transition uh, to the tax code, as I was saying, from the rate base or from the customer. Right. So the, the principle is if this works as designed, it should be rate neutral. That's right. I should, my, no matter what my utility does uh, in, with regard to this, my rates should not change. My taxes will be affected in some tiny uh, only if you way. make more than uh, more than four hundred thousand dollars a year, right? So that's right. the thing, right? right. In, in, within the commitments, at least that the you know the Biden administration has made, and that the Senate Democrats and House Democrats appear to you know be committed to, uh, your rates, your and you know mine probably won't change unless you make more than four hundred thousand dollars a year, um, or you um, are a corporation, right? So those are the areas where they're looking to raise revenue. Um, and, uh, and, and so the, the, you know, the impact on rates is important. It's not your electricity bill in, you know, in conjunction with the tax credit packages, which lower the cost of electricity on the generator side and the incentives for utilities, for retailers on the, you know, customer side to purchase new clean electricity that are paid for by the, the budgetary, um, uh, CES prop policy. We should expect rates to be flat for the wholesale supply portion of your energy. Anyway, your you know your distribution network costs may change, your retailer costs may change. But I have two other thought, thoughts about this that are more in the weeds, and you're the best person in the world to talk to about this. I mean, the first one is like, I mean, you you know better than anybody that like the incremental clean kilowatt hour is not equivalent no matter when it is produced and where it is produced, right? But the, it'd be hard to incorporate that into this kind of a policy structure. I guess what I'm wondering is, are, do you run the risk of creating some some sort of weird adverse incentives where, uh, you know, a utility can add, th they can add a lot of cheap generation by just signing, you know, a bunch more solar PPAs in a market that's already solar saturated, for example, or wind PPAs in a market where wind's saturated or whatever it might be. But those are not actually the resources that are going to drive you to the really high, uh, portions of clean generation over doing the somewhat more expensive thing, which is maybe actually more valuable to the system of adding storage or, you know, CCS or whatever it might be. Yeah. So there, the, this policy is not going to differentiate between the value of uh, different megawatt hours of clean electricity from a policy perspective. And that is a shortcoming, right? There are other ways that we could potentially try to differentiate the, the kind of marginal emissions reduction value or things like that of, of each uh, clean megawatt hour. In that sense, it's very similar to the production tax credit, right? A megawatt hour is worth what a megawatt hour is worth from a policy perspective. Now, it's important though to note that that is coupled with two other things. One is the markets, the electricity markets themselves, which are going to tell, um, you know, developers that a, a megawatt hour of electricity produced in the middle of the day when there's lots of solar power is worth a lot less than the uh, megawatt hour produced at 9 p.m., you know, when the sun is down and demand is high. And so, you know, clean, firm resources or energy storage are, are going to be able to access um, those higher market prices. Uh, while, you know, continuing to add more and more solar at midday, driving prices more and more negative is going to, you know, impact the bottom line for those companies. So, you know, we have to count on the electricity markets themselves to continue to provide good incentives to provide um, generation when and where it is most valuable. 
um, the policy itself is not going to help on that front. Um, and that's, you know, one of the restrictions of moving through this uh, reconciliation process is that the policy instrument has to be pretty simple. Um, now, the, the other piece, though, is important is this, again, is one of a package of policies that will be included in this reconciliation bill. And amongst those policies includes a bunch of tax credits, um, some of which may be targeted towards energy storage or clean firm you know, power sources, like carbon capture and storage, hydrogen, uh, and other advanced technologies that we need to see move forward, advanced geothermal. Um, and so, you know, we're going to see a broader package of both RD&D spending as part of the infrastructure, bipartisan infrastructure framework and tax credits as part of the reconciliation bill. And so it's important to think about the overall policy package and how that's going to transform the electricity sector. The clean electricity standard is one piece of that, but its main intent really is to just drive um, drive up the clean energy share over the next decade um, and to provide the financial incentives on the utility side, on the retail electric supplier side that complement the incentives um, on the you know developer and generator side provided by the tax credits. Uh, okay, one other I guess somewhat nuanced question. So the targets that will be set for any given retail electricity provider in any year is, you know, X percent of new uh, clean electricity generation. Let's just say five percent per year, just for the for simplicity's sake. Is that five uh, percent increase on your current share, or is that five percent period? In other words, what happens? You know, how, how does this affect the distinction between like a utility in the Pacific Northwest that has a ton of hydro and is already at a really high share? of clean versus a utility in the Southeast that's pretty coal heavy still and has a very low share. Yeah, this is a really important point and another important distinction between this policy and a traditional CES. So a traditional clean electricity standard would require every utility to achieve the same objective, right? And they may, you know, buy unbundled, you know, attributes credits from somewhere else to kind of meet their standard if they actually don't generate all the electricity themselves. But, you know, an RPS says every utility needs to be at 50% clean electricity by 2030 or something like that. Um, this policy embraces a different principle, which is that you start the race where you're at and then you move at the same pace. So it's about increasing clean electricity by a certain percentage point each year, not about achieving a given clean electricity share for each utility. And so while the goal is to move the nationwide average to 80% clean electricity, that is not a requirement for each individual utility. The incentive is there for each utility to start with whatever share they're at and to add new or actually to increase the total, which is important uh, because that implicitly values existing resources too, um, and to move forward uh, all across the country. And so that you know basically says, if you're a utility that's starting below the national average of about 40% clean share today, you won't be penalized for that. You will be required to add clean electricity at the same pace as any other utility. Um, and you won't end up at 80% by 2030. You'll, you, know, you can do the math, right? You can say, well, I'm at 20% now. And I'm going to add 4% per year for 10 years. So I'll be at 60%, right? Um, and so that's an important distinction here. It's not asking every utility to catch up to the same target. It's asking every utility to start where they're at and to move forward at the same pace. Now, there's a, a subtle distinction, which is that those utilities that are very close to 100% clean, we don't want them to go to 120%, right? That doesn't really make any sense, or to, you know, even to necessarily sprint through the finish line. And so if, as, you, as a utility gets close to 100%, the annual rate of increase that is um, targeted for those utilities would go down. So maybe they only need to add one or two percentage points per year as they get close to 100. But everybody else is moving forward at the same pace. Um, and so it's, you know, start where you are, add clean electricity at the same pace, and that ensures that utilities that are in very diverse conditions across the country aren't penalized for where they're at. Um, and it ensures that we're adding clean electricity all over the country, right? So we're delivering the economic benefits 
that are central to this, you know, this is the American jobs plan, right? It's not the, just the climate policy, it's an economic policy. And so they would deliver, you know, clean energy investment all over the country and the economic benefits that go along with that as well. Who would implement this? I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of nuance here. As we talked about, you have to set these individual utility level targets and then see how much clean generation comes online. Like, is this a DOE implemented Type policy. Yeah, that's the that's the vision right now that this would be a DOE implemented policy, which means that this would be part of the Senate Energy and Natural Resource Committee and the House Energy and Commerce Committee portions of this budget reconciliation bill. So, uh, you know, so far as we've described it, it sounds like this is basically all carrot and no stick for those who would be affected, the utilities for the most part. Is that right? Or is there any stick component? Yeah, we should call it a carrot forward policy rather than all carrots. So the idea is that all utilities are going to make sufficient progress to qualify, you know, move over that threshold to qualify for uh, federal payments or rebates to help um, invest in clean electricity. Um, If utilities are kind of flagrantly ignoring the incentives or deciding not to participate at all, um, and they fall far short of the goal, then there would be a fee assessed for how far they fall short of the um, annual increase in clean electricity. So there is a, a stick waiting behind the carrot if uh, if needed to encourage uh, all utilities to participate in the program. So obviously we have 30 some states that already have their own version of a renewable portfolio standard or a clean electricity standard. Presumably this would just kind of sit on top of those and uh, basically help pay for them. Yeah, that's right. This is not a federal preemption of state goals. Um, that's always been a kind of a question or a touchy subject about federal clean electricity standard or RPS policies to date is, you know, do they preempt the federal, the, the state standards? How do they interact with them? This is much more straightforward, right? It's a financial incentive. If utilities are already making progress to meet some uh, state RPS or clean electricity uh, standard, then this effectively shifts the cost of that onto the federal tax base, right? It's going to provide substantial payments uh, to utilities to for ma- making that progress um, and help them meet those goals at a much lower cost for customers. And I think that's, you know, again, a really important um, piece of the policy design. Uh, it, you know, it, it helps make this a much more progressive and, you know, equitable policy. Um, and I think it'll make it a much more popular policy as well. All right. So what has to happen for but, but between where we are today with this kind of like high level idea of, of a clean electricity standard embedded within a much much larger three point five trillion dollars spending package, um, what has to happen between here and this becoming legislation? Yeah. So we've you know last week basically we you know with the the kind of unveiling of the overall budget framework and we passed a really important milestone which is that we managed to ensure that there is a window for this policy to move forward, right? This is a novel construct, right? This is not like we've had 10 years of, you know, um, you know, uh, marker legislation getting beat up and, you know, moved around the Senate. Like this is a novel construct. We had to start from scratch to design a clean electricity standard alternative that works in budget reconciliation. And so what has to happen now is that, um, you know, this uh, policy framework needs to start to move into the committee process as, you know, part of what the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, chaired by Joe Manchin, um, and the House um, Energy and Commerce Committee, chaired by Frank Pallone, uh, need to start working on as part of the uh, reconciliation process. And so that's where the details, the legislative text, the, you know, nuances, the compromises are going to need to be made. Um, and whatever moves through that process has to secure the support of every single member of the Senate Democratic Caucus, all 50 of them, 
right? From the most liberal to the most conservative. And even in the House, the same thing. There's only a four vote Democratic majority in the House. And so, you know, normally you can sort of say, well, the House will just vote, you know, the, with the priorities. But here, you know, we also have to make sure that there is um, a policy that can, uh, can secure agreement across the whole political spectrum in the Democratic caucus in the House as well. And so, you know, we're going to see how the policy evolves and, and how it moves. But I think what um, what is important here is that we have a policy that is for those who are concerned about climate change, who want to see it uh, take a central role in uh, in this legislation, it is a you know a keystone policy in the overall effort to confront climate change. If we don't win and we don't move this policy forward this year, it is unlikely that we're going to move uh, we're going to achieve the overall um, you know emissions reduction goals by 2030. Like this is a pivotal policy that needs to pass in some form uh, this year. So there's an urgent, important piece of the climate agenda. Um, and for those that are more concerned about, you know, sort of the role of different resources here, about the impact on energy costs, um, you know, this addresses a lot of those concerns as well. Because as we said, it's not going to increase electricity rates. You know, this can't be tarred as an energy tax hiding, you know, in disguise. It, it is a uh, federal investment in clean electricity across the country. And that's incredibly popular. And it uh, means that the ratepayer impacts are, you know, are, are avoided. And it's technology neutral. So, you know, Joe Manchin uh, came out of one of those budget committee uh, or budget framework discussions and said he had some concerns about some of the you know climate policies. He wanted to make sure that we weren't trying to eliminate fossil fuels overnight. Um, you know, we need to make sure that we recognize that we're going to continue to use fossil energy over you know the next decade as we make this transition. And, you know, this policy recognizes that as well. The goal of a clean electricity standard is to eliminate emissions. It is not to eliminate fossil fuels. And we're talking about an 80% by 2030 target, which means there's still a lot of room for natural gas to play a balancing role in our electricity system. And that's been a concern for utilities, right? We need to have something that can back up and support uh, variable resources like wind and solar. And until we develop clean, firm alternatives like advanced nuclear, advanced geothermal to come online, you know, maybe towards 2030, we're going to have to rely on the gas plants to do that role. And so this creates um, space for that. It's a you know transition timeline that is... Um, not going to eliminate, you know, fossil energy overnight. Um, and it's going to, uh, it's technology neutral. And so it means there's room for carbon capture and storage or clean hydrogen to uh, compete in the overall portfolio um, with other cleaner resources as well. Um, so I think all of those mean, you know, we have a chance here to address, you know, political priorities across the spectrum and secure, you know, the broad consensus needed to move this policy forward in the, really in the next two months. Um, you know, the timeline is pretty fast here. What we're going to see now is um, a vote this week, I think, on the resolution, the overall framework for the budget that will kick off the reconciliation process. Then we're going to see committees working really hard through much of their August recess, unfortunately, thanks to the, all the Senate and now staffers are going to work their butts off uh, this summer. Um, and then sometime before the end of September, this resolution, uh, the, the reconciliation bill needs to pass um, as part of the fiscal year for 2022. So this is going to happen really in the next two and a half months. All right. Well, we may have you back on to tell us uh, what actually happened in sometime in September. But uh, in the meantime, thank you so much for uh, coming on at the last minute and walking us through this complicated but important step in the process. Thanks, Joe. Good to talk to you as always. Jesse Jenkins, who you've heard before, is a professor at Princeton with appointments in both the School of Engineering and Applied Science and the Anlinger Center for Energy and the Environment. Uh, he, we normally have him on to talk about deep, wonky, long-term energy modeling. Now we're talking about 
deep, wonky, short-term energy policy, uh, but he's involved in both, so it makes sense. What did you think of today's show? Uh, give us a rating to let us know how we're doing. Give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Tweet at us at, at Interchange Show. Tweet at Jesse. He's big on Twitter, at Jesse Jenkins, I think, or something like that. You'll find him. He's big. Uh, email us as well, contact at postscriptaudio.com if you want to give us show ideas or feedback. The Interchange is produced by Postscript Audio. Our producers are Daniel Waldorf and Stephen Lacey. I'm Shale Khan, and this is The Interchange. Interchange.